Hi, this is Don from Mayleaf and welcome to Tea Lifted Conversations, a podcast dedicated to free, uninhibited conversation over tea across all kinds of subjects to engage, inspire and entertain. Today, I'm talking about the anatomy of flavor perception with Virginia Utamolan Lovelace, MD. Virginia was born in New York City with extended family ties to the Netherlands and Britain. She studied medicine at Columbia University and worked as a pediatrician and an immunologist before moving into the faculty of the Division of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell University. Her current work is devoted to understanding the science of flavor, especially in relation to tea. She has written two books on this subject, Three Basic Teas and How to Enjoy Them, and more recently, Tea, A Nerd's Eye View. Before we get stuck in, if you're inspired by our conversation about tea, then please check out our YouTube channel, which has hundreds of videos about everything that you need to know about tea and tea culture, and then treat yourself to some pinnacle tea and teaware by visiting mayleaf.com. Also, be sure to sign up to our email newsletter announcing future podcasts. I'll put all links to these and Virginia's pages in the podcast description. Right, let's dive in. I hope that you enjoy. Hi, Virginia. Finally, we get to speak. It's so great to have you on this show. How are you? I'm doing very well, and it's wonderful to be back talking with you, Don. I have always loved our conversations. Absolutely. Where, so tell everybody where in the world you are speaking from. I am speaking from uh, Chelmsford, Massachusetts in the United States. And, uh, you know, it's named after the Chelmsford that's in England. And uh, in fact, the people who settled here came from Chelmsford in England. It's always amazing when I look at a U.S. map and I see all of these uh, names of cities and I'm like, oh, wow, it's, you can uh, certainly see the, 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 the British uh, have had a, a big effect on all of, the, all of the city names there. So Chelmsford, I know it well in the U.K. Unfortunately, I don't know it that well in the U.S. Um, is it a, a, a nice part of the country? It's a beautiful part of the country. It's a, it's a small town that is surrounded by just beautiful forests and woods and uh, parks. And it's really um, an amazing part of the US, I must say. Um, and the other thing about Chelmsford is my personal collect connection to it, or actually my daughter's connection to it because it's through her father. Um, they, their family came from Chelmsford and settled here and named this place Chelmsford, his ancestors. Really? Yes. And the other connection with Chelmsford is that, uh, Chelmsford is where Marconi was. And my grandfather was the first person to organize a rescue at open sea using wireless. And he was a Marconi man and Chelmsford is where records of all this are in England. Wow. The, so the connection to the, the British roots is very strong oh, in your very, family then. Oh, very. <laughs> well, my, and my, my grandfather, of course, was, was um, from uh, uh, Lincolnshire and uh, grew up in Peterborough, though. And uh, so I have very strong British roots on that side. And then on my, my, my mother's mother's side also. So, uh, yeah. Um, and do you have uh, Dutch roots? And I have Dutch roots. My father was born, uh, uh, well, he was actually born in what was then the Dutch East Indies, where my grandfather was a doctor. And uh, so he, but he grew up after age nine, he grew up in, uh, 
in Amsterdam. So yeah, very <laughs> strong Dutch roots on that side as well. So very strong Dutch and British roots. And uh, for many years, diving into the world of tea, which seems uh, very apt considering <laughs> the rich tea history of both of those nations. Oh, absolutely. Um, I first met you, oh, in fact, the only time I've actually met you face-to-face uh, was at the Tea Expo. I can't remember which year. I think it was um, 2016, maybe, 2015. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and I attended one of your uh, classes about the, uh, uh, what was it called, organoleptic uh, experience of tea. Yes. And I, I, I remember walking out of that uh, session and... Uh, my mind uh, w- w- had been set alight because all of these experiences that I had been experiencing through my tea journey uh, started to fall a little bit more into place because of all of the theories that you were uh, discussing in your lecture. So I really wanted to dive into that with you. And this is perfect timing because you've just recently released your book, which is Tea a nerd's eye view, is that correct? That's correct, yes. And this is a follow-up to your uh, first book, which was um, Three Basic Teas and How to Enjoy Them. Correct. Um, both of which are excellent, excellent reads. Uh, I am often, as you can imagine, asked by people to recommend books and always top of the list are your books because of the fact that you dive into an area which I think is fascinating to me and fascinating to to many people involved in tea because of the fact that it relates directly to experience rather than necessarily sort of the history of tea or, uh, you know, the the sort of uh, the production methods of tea. Although you do go into a lot of detail regarding processing and production, but it's all based around the same thing, which is the experience of taste. And uh, as uh, anybody who's watched our videos would attest, that's where we are most most fascinated with tea is how we can uh, describe and explain the whys, the hows and the whats of taste in tea. So I want to dive into that with you. But before we do that, can you just briefly introduce yourself in terms of your tea story a little bit, sort of the the abridged version, the the shortened version of how you got involved in, in tea? Yeah, well, I will, I will tell you that when I, I, had, I really never had tea until I was six years old. And we spent that summer, that was in 1949, uh, we spent that summer in, in Europe visiting with family both in the Netherlands and in England. And on the way back, we um, went on a, um, well, it was a 200 and some odd passenger slash cargo ship from the Cunard line called the Media, M-E-D-I-A. And the Media um, was very, very small. It had a lounge, and that was the only place where you could do anything. And as a six-year-old, that's where I hung out. The weather was terrible. This was the end of October, and the weather was terrible. So going out on deck was not an option. we had to stay in the lounge, and the lounge, of course, had these wonderful little old English ladies in it who were all having tea. And um, being kind of a, a, a slightly forward, cute little girl, they they took kindly to me. 
and uh, invited me to join them with their tea. And so they uh, would pour tea for me and explain all about tea from the very English point of view that these wonderful little old ladies had. And there were about three of them that would always, I would make a fourth in the group. And, uh, and then we would enjoy the tea, but they discussed how do you do do you put milk in it? Do you put lemon in it? What do you do? I I liked it with lemon. It was a, you know, it was a typical Assam English breakfast tea type thing. And um, yeah, I, I really liked it. But then I went, uh, we got home and somehow tea was never part of our life in, in New York City, where I grew up. Uh, although when I went Back to Europe, which we did constantly, of course, tea would reappear. But then eventually, um, I well, let me start by saying the reason I am so focused on how we experience flavor is that when I was a kid, I had so many foods that I truly hated. And I had so much trouble trying to explain to people why I hated these foods and why I've refused categorically to eat them. And my father told me at some point, at some dinner, we we were all sitting around the dinner table, and he said, well, you know, people differ in how they experience flavor. And I said, oh. And then he described to me, and I was, I guess I was about 11 or 12 years old at the time, he described to me, or he actually he went and got a book because <laughs> he always got books to explain things, and and he showed me how in fact people did differ in the ability to taste certain chemical compounds, and I don't know whether any of your listeners have had the experience of tasting a piece of paper that had a chemical on it that's for short is called PTC. And some people can taste it and some people can't. Did you ever do that, Don? No, I've never done that test, no. Okay. It's very popular in the U.S. in classes because it's supposed to show some kind of genetic connection. It's actually an extremely complicated genetic connection, but that's okay. Anyway, um, I can taste it and it tastes mind-bogglingly horrible to me. And... You know, there's a whole collection of people, especially um, sort of people of European descent, uh, who cannot taste it at all. This question of individual differences in perception uh, nagged me in part because I, you know, people got on my case because I didn't like a food. Can you uh, can you remember any particular food that was something that? Green beans. I hate green beans. <laughs> and have you isolated which uh, chemical compounds it is that you are particularly allergic to? <laughs> Good question. Um, I don't know exactly what it is in green beans, but anything that looks like a green bean or tastes like a green bean, I don't like. I absolutely hate peas. Another thing I hate, and this is horrible for somebody who lives in the United States, is, is sweet corn uh, or maize. And, oh, you know, everybody tries to convince me I'm going to like sweet corn or peep, Brussels sprouts, <laughs> Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so we've established that you are a very hypersensitive uh, taster. Um, 
uh, and uh, I'm sure you've done your own tests on yourself regarding that. Um, but but bringing it back to tea, just so so as a as a as a child, you were fascinated with the concept of the subjectivity of taste. Yes. Um, then uh, you moved into the world of medicine. Is that correct? That's correct. After uh, you know, in the United States, we do an undergraduate degree. So I did that. I did that in physics, actually. And uh, then I I was accepted into medical school. And um, during my time in medical school, um, nothing. Well, actually, there were a couple of little fascinating things because. Um, for example, the taste of Coca-Cola. Now, I happen to have, have liked, you'll notice the past tense, uh, have liked the flavors of Coca-Cola. And um, it changed flavor during the time I was in medical school. And what they had done was change the formulation from a high potassium formulation, which gives it a nice little bitter edge, uh, to a much sweeter formulation. Then they added high fructose corn syrup, etc. I mean... These these changes kept rolling in, and uh, as I said, past tense for liking it. Um, but so, but I noticed that a lot of my classmates also did not notice that there had been any change in the flavor at all. That again kept talking to me. So when I got to Cornell and I was in the division of nutritional sciences, um, eventually I sort of got permission, as it were, from the world, I don't know who gave it to me, to think in terms of taste and flavor. Oh, I know who gave it to me, a person who works with wine, actually, and I did some work with that person. But then uh, I got uh, asked by Scott Svihula, who had to give a talk at World Tea Expo. Um, he had to give a talk on taste and and the tastes of tea. And he was he's very fascinated with again, what happens with tea. So I helped him with that talk. And I said, in exchange for that, I, I have to get a freebie to go to the <laughs> World Tea Expo and um, and participate. And that just opened the door. The door, it knocked down the walls and <laughs> gave me a huge vista on the world of tea. Is that where you first, you first tried the uh, oolong that you write about? Exactly. He had brought a oolong that I just, oh my goodness, I had never had Wulong before. And I had no idea what I was going to experience, but he had brought it for his session that I was at and helped him with. And I was breathless. I, I, I could, you know, I was supposed to help and not drink too much of the tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, I drank, I sat, I finally sat down, there were tables, then I had to go, you know, I was supposed to circulate a bit, but I sat down at the table and I just drank that stuff because it was, <laughs> it was amazing. And the whole, the people at the table just raved about it as well. I mean, these were tea people and they said, oh, this is marvelous. And what's the, but it was a Taiwanese oolong? It was a Taiwanese oolong, yes. It was Do you remember the, the mountain or the variety? It was, it was not an Alishan because it didn't look like an Alishan. Now I know what an Alishan looks like. Um, and I've had that and I've been blown away. But I will tell you, I've been blown away by Wulongs ever, ever since I tasted that first one. And I have been seeking out Wulongs ever since. Uh, and 
every single one of them that I've tried has been marvelous, but in a different way. Um, yeah. And that's what's extraordinary about Wulongs is that so much depends, so much of the flavor of it depends on the leaf that you choose to pick and how then you choose to process it. As you may have guessed from the discussion of those pieces of paper for PTC, I'm fairly sensitive to bitterness. And uh, with a tea, in particular green tea, um, I brew my green tea for half a minute because I cannot deal with the bitterness. And the catechins, they start really coming out in a minute of brewing and then really take off after that. So a, a very short brew. And... Uh, you may <laughs> find me uh, rather. Mm-mm. No, in fact, you know that's uh, that's pretty much the tenant of uh, of Gong Fu Brewing is is short infusion. Exactly, exactly. But what happens with a a wulong, especially with a Gong Fu style brewing that you do and demonstrate so well is you can take it a half minute and another half minute or 15 seconds and then another 15 seconds and the flavors unfold in the most extraordinary way. And well, there's, there's a couple of reasons to drink tea. And one reason is just to have something nice to drink. That's okay. You know, but if you're going to be paying attention to the flavors that you experience, which is really, you know, getting absorbed into the flavors that you experience, I guess, then Gong Fu is the only way to go, in my opinion. And I've done it with green tea. I've done it with Wulongs. I've done it with white. I've done it with black. I've done it with uh, Puer, which I happen not to like so much, but that's another story. <laughs> I'm sure we can dive into your relationship with Pua, and I'll probably be one of those people that's uh, it, making it my life mission to try to convert you to the wonders of Pua. But we'll say we'll save that for a, a, another day, perhaps. Exactly. Um, but um, no, I mean, a hundred percent. You're you're preaching to the converted here. I'm I'm a total convert to to the Gong Fu to the Gong Fu way of brewing. Um, although I had sort of experienced the Gong Fu way in the U.S., it was really watching your videos, Don, that opened my eyes to this whole approach. Well, I'm very happy to hear that, Virginia, because, you know, the, the, as I said, the, the, uh, the effect of your lecture on, on, on uh, my tea journey was profound, and, and not just it re- regarding tea, um, but food in general. Yes, I, I think we should we should dive into a little bit about your uh, your the, the way that you look at flavor perception because your book from from my reading of it it sort of covers two very important sides of the same coin the first being you know what it is about tea that gives flavor uh, from the physical uh, compounds uh, the chemical compounds in the tea leaf um, and the whole aspect of terroir humidity temperature soil all of those things um, in terms of creating the ultimate raw materials all the way through to the plant's reaction to stress um, and the ultimate stress of it being plucked and withered and oxidized etc all of the different compounds that are created and it is a world of fascination. And as you said, 
with oolong teas in particular due to the uh, due to the length of the processing uh, period there is so much more control that the producers have in crafting flavors and teas which may be desirable or not desirable depending upon your subjective opinion but with oolong teas you have such a, a huge palette of flavors that you can develop because of the level of processing so that's one side of it is the is the what of the of the tea tasting um, and I think that I would love to dive into maybe another discussion with you at some point regarding that, because that's a whole, a whole world of exploration. But what I found so fascinating from the lecture that I attended was the way that you approach the how, how people taste and why we have subjective differences in our appreciation of different foods and drinks and, you know, moving into the concept of pairing as well, which is something I know that you're very fascinated by. So I think that it would be lovely for you to introduce to the audience you, the basics of tasting and, and specifically moving into your own take regarding the trigeminal system in the tasting process. Am I right in thinking that your theories regarding the trigeminal system, is this now consensus or is this still something that is a sort of uh, fringe theory? Uh, I don't know whether you'd call it fringe exactly, but it's certainly not something that gets considered at all. Right. So that's the prize at the end of this discussion, because that I think was the big game changer for me, the effect of the trigeminal system on modulating taste. Um, but let's take it back, if you don't mind, and let's talk about the sort of anatomy of taste. Uh, I guess you know we should sort of dive into the into the concept of taste buds first, and then we can move to maybe odorants, and we can move to the trigeminal system a bit later. Uh, is that okay with you? Yes, and uh, I, uh, I'm trying to think how I would be begin uh, because we don't have visuals. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm an intensely visual person. It would, uh, you know, it would help be able to draw. So I want to draw a picture in your minds, uh, dear listeners, of how your taste system works. Now, the first thing you'll realize, of course, is that when you uh, bring a cup of tea to your, you know, up to your nose, as it were, you're going to be smelling something um, that emanates from the tea and that goes into your nose and, you know, from breathing it in, as it were. And that is a process called orthonasal, that is to say straight nose, <laughs> um, straight nose experience. And you bring uh, those aroma chemicals into your nose and you get a first intimation of what's going to be coming in the cup when you sip it. And then you sip the tea and um, when you sip the tea, some of those chemicals that are in the tea that you're sipping actually go back in the back of your throat and up into your nose. And when they go up into your nose, they go into the backside of that, um, you know, that smell area, as it were, and, um, and then give you a, a smell message, but you don't recognize it as a smell message because the brain takes it and then assigns it to your mouth. And it is right. and that's retronasal. And that's retronasal olfaction exactly. And that that assignment to the mouth um, 
um, is combined with the sensations you get from uh, the tongue and your whole mouth area. Okay, so I'm just want to break it down because I think it's so fascinating what you're talking about. So you've got the aroma coming from the outside world into your nose. Then you've got the aroma which is coming from taking something into your mouth and, and essentially breathing out or the volatiles rising up into the nasal cavity, which is why I'm constantly telling people when they're tasting tea to, to always breathe out through the nose while you have tea in your mouth because it definitely accentuates that. Um, can we discuss a little bit about how, because I'm so fascinated by smell because as we all know, smell is, you know, uh, is, is, is a, almost an emotional response to something. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Because it, it passes through brain centers, which are essentially having to determine very quickly, is this friendly or an enemy? Is this going to be helpful or harmful? Exactly. Is that correct? That's totally correct. And as a matter of fact, um, the the little um, that well, let me let me start by saying, at the roof of your nose, towards the back, there is a patch called the olfactory patch, and that patch has actually in it little tiny nerve endings that come down from the brain, and are part of the brain um, that actually capture the chemicals that are passing by. And one of the, and that message of that chemical passing by then goes up into a extension of the brain, as it were, uh, called the olfactory bulb. Um, by the way, our eyeballs are extensions of the brain as well. Just to, you know, sort of, so we have the eyeballs as one sensory system as an extension of the brain, and we have the olfactory uh, bulb as an extension of the brain. Then the important thing that happens next is that it is a hop, skip, and a jump. That is, well, not even a hop, skip, and a jump. It's just a hop and a skip, two neurons away, uh, that you get actually um, to, um, well, a part of the brain called the piriform cortex. And between the olfactory bulb and the piriform cortex, we have... Uh, how might I say this? Well, for, let me start by saying the olfactory bulb um, makes what's called a sparse representation of the experience. When you smell, there's always chemicals around us. And every time we breathe in, we're bringing these chemicals into our nose. And if we were to you know, identify each one of them separately as, as a different smell, it, it, You'd be overwhelmed, right? Um, yeah. But if you can, if your what your olfactory bulb will do, this little extension of the brain will do, is say basically, okay, this is familiar. We don't need to pay attention to it. This is new. We need to pay attention to it. So it gives what's called a sparse representation. It says, well, I'm going to pick this, this, and this out of the environment and send that message on. I'm going to ignore all the rest because it's already been there or it's not important. Or, in fact, I have no way of perceiving it. But is this, is this happening in the olfactory bulb or the piriform cortex? This is already happening in the olfactory bulb. Wow, okay. So there's a selection happening in the olfactory bulb about what in, which information to send to onwards into the brain. That's a perfect way to describe it. And uh, 
Then the next thing that happens is that that message goes to the piriform cortex and it starts assembling this information into something that you can call an odor object. And a classic example of this is there are chemicals which totally separately uh, smell like completely different things. And when together, they smell like a, a third thing. So uh, with, with respect to tea, um, there are uh, a couple of chemicals in tea, one of which is beta-damascanone. And beta-damascanone has a, uh, a dusty rose smell. Damascanone is like damask rose. That's why yeah. we got the name from. Um, and, um, and then you can combine that with another um, rose-like smell, like uh, 2-phenylethanol. And separately, they smell quite different, and they smell rose-like one and the other. But when you put them together, they smell like honey. And they both exist in tea. And when you have a tea that has the right combination of these two, what you will actually experience is honey, not not either of these separately. So the formation of odor objects in the piriform cortex is essentially uh, you've got you've got such a vast amount of of information coming through that uh, there's a selection process that happens in the olfactory bulb. Then what happens is that the the odors the separate odors are sort of grouped together and say, well, actually these two will form the smell of pineapple or will form the smell of honey. Now, is that based upon learning, like memory, or is that something that happens automatically? We don't know. Um, and one of the fascinating things you can do is to try to train yourself to smell them separately. In fact, I'm thinking because I have, <laughs> I have samples of these two chemicals. Um, and, and when you do smell them together, I mean, the, the smell of honey is quite striking. Um, and, uh, but I, th- I think, you know, I, that's an experiment to do. It's fascinating because, because like when I'm doing tea tastings, um, I sort of see it as this process of combining and breaking down. Yes. So it's sort of like, uh, I, I, I you have your instinctive response to, to a certain smell. Oh, it smells like, I don't know, uh, it has a pyrazine smell to it, or it has a, a honey-like smell to it, or it has a, a, a baked smell or a bready smell. Uh, and then you can, uh, you can sort of start to elaborate on that and say, well, this reminds me of like a hot buttered brioche, you know, <laughs> slathered with clotted cream on a, on a, on a Wednesday in May. <laughs> Um, or you can start to break it down and start to say, well, what are the sort of, you know, th- this is the this is the memory object, probably vastly more complex than the odor object, which is being created in the in the piriform cortex. Yes. But this is my memory object. How do I break this down into the constituent parts to try to uh, understand the origins of this aroma? And it's it's an interesting sort of exercise. I think you're talking about the exercise of how much does memory play a part in that? It would be a fascinating experiment to sort of isolate smells that maybe some people could never have smelt before, you know, as a combination or something and try to work out whether or not they can split them apart or recombine them. 
it's certainly an area for, for more research. Yeah, well, there is, you know, that is, that is an area that is fascinating because, the, as I say, a hop and a skip, because it's basically a hop to the piriform cortex, and then it's a um, skip, uh, in other words, two neurons away, uh, two, uh, well, two, maybe three, to the hippocampus, which is part of your memory system. And yeah. being able to remember smells has been evolutionarily critically important for animals, including ourselves, because you will have a memory of a smell of, say, I don't know, that saber-toothed tiger that tried to attack you the other day, and you smell, you know, the the smell of its urine or whatever. And, uh, and you have to, you know, that, that this tiger has been around here pretty recently and we better get the heck out of there. Um, or you have the memory of a smell of a beautiful fruit, for example, and you come across that smell again and you know that somewhere in the vicinity, there's a beautiful fruit ready for you to pick and eat etc., etc. Plus, one of the things we do not totally recognize is how much that smell memory um, counts for um, interpersonal friendships and, and relationship. Um, just yeah. to give you a classic example, my, my mother had a certain smell. Um, and her clothes were had that smell. And <laughs> after she passed away, I put the, her clothes in a closet. And I would see my granddaughters, who were very, my, my daughters, her granddaughters, very close to her, occasionally just walk to the closet, open the door, sniff, and then close the door again. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's one of the most, I think, one of the most remarkable uh, and totally instinctive things like it's like walking, you know, you go back to your old school or something. Just the combinations of smell in the air just emotionally bring you back to a place. Uh, and, and, and I think that, you know, as you said, it, it's because, possibly because your sense of smell is so crucial to uh, evolutionary success that, uh, that it needs to be linked to emotional memory, to your hippocampus, to your amygdala. You know, it needs to be linked to, is this good? Is this bad? You know, how, how, how do I remember this smell? Um, and it, it, it leads us into that whole world of subjectivity. Everybody's going to have a diff slightly different uh, relationship in a way to certain smells. Absolutely. And, 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 and you mentioned the word instinctive all the time just now, and that's critically important because this is subconscious. It's only when you eventually get to something called the orbitofrontal cortex, which is right above the eyeballs, um, that you really put all this information together in a conscious way. Uh, so you give the smell uh, identity, significance, and, 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 and value positive or negative, uh, once the odors, you know, arise to consciousness, but you already have these feelings and uh, the instant memory and what have you um, before that at a sort of more subconscious level. Um, and the other thing that is fascinating to me about Wulongs in particular is that they have a chemical in them called Indole, I-N-D-O-L. Oh, yeah. 
And indole is a, when you, when, well, first of all, let's say that, let's point, posit that people differ in their sensitivity to indole. Some people, like yours truly, are, are way more sensitive to it than other people. Um, but, and, and at low concentrations, it, it, it can be quite pleasant and somewhat sweet. But when I open my little vial of indole, you know, I, and I sniff it, I say, oh, because it smells very animalic, uh, like fecal material, shall we say. And in fact, it's a chemical that is in fecal material. Um, but, but. So, so uh, this is a relationship of uh, threshold. Is that right? Oh, totally, totally, totally. And, 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 but even at a sub-threshold level, uh, we can be aware of its presence. When I say subthreshold, you don't identify it as being itself. So, um, but you will be aware of it. And that particular chemical has the capacity of waking up a part of the brain that says, pay attention. And so, and what you will have with a wulong is you can't ignore it. If you, you know, you can, I can have my black tea next to me while I'm working or something and I sip it and, you know, I'm kind of ignoring and I'm working on something, but I can never do that with a wulong ever because it just, yeah, it, there's a there there that wakes you up and says, pay attention to this. And that's the fact that, that during the processing of Wulong, in the time uh, uh, that it gets sort of beaten up, um, rolled in the, you know, bruised, I think is the classic word for it. When it gets bruised in the drum, uh, the, the leaf produces this indole. The leaf produces it to say to other leaves, hey, something's really going wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, the, it's the mayday, mayday, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble here, but but yes. But on the other hand, um, you know, for for somebody um, who uh, is into uh, uh, into tea, uh, it just says, "Oh my goodness, pay attention." And in fact, perfumers use indole or equivalents of indole uh, to uh, make the perf- per- wearer of the perfume more interesting to the uh, yeah perceiver. yeah. It's one of those things, isn't it? Uh, there's, it's, it, I guess it's a lesson in life as well, is that you, know, uh, you can't just have things that are sweet-smelling all the time, that are all good. You know, to add a, a certain level of interest, there needs to be something that raises attention. Exactly. Um, and that usually comes from a sort of a smell, which is a little bit, ooh, you know, do I like this? Is this safe? You know, there's something about that. Um, I'm always, uh, I always, uh, since sort of learning about the, the aroma formation of tea, whenever I go to visit tea producers and I see all those leaves withering, uh, um, you know, in piles, I just sort of hear this collective shrieking going on of like, ah, <laughs> with all, all of these aroma chemicals being released saying danger, danger, we're being destroyed. <laughs> but, uh, but it certainly makes for delicious tea. That's for sure. Um, but what's fascinating about what you've talked about, and, and apologies for interrupting you earlier, but I just it, it shows that there's so much depth in this, is the idea of 
all of this activity which is happening subconsciously, which is happening below the machinations of the sort of the conscious mind, the, the, the selection process that's happening in the olfactory bulb, this creation of odor objects in the piriform cortex, the passing of these objects through sort of uh, your your memory and uh, the amygdala to, to look for, for big warning signs. All of this is happening without you being aware of it. And then you're almost sort of rationalizing the result of that through yeah. your, uh, through your uh, conscious state, through, through identity, through attention, etc. And um, I think that that, that is such a, a, an amazing thing to realize, the amount that your body is doing uh, in the tasting process, which is totally subconscious. Um, and as you say, the end result, hopefully, is a, a, tea, a tea which is, has enough character to it and enough complexity that it draws you into it, that it, that it, it forces some attention, and that that attention uh, then can somehow relate to other aspects of whatever you're doing. Yeah. Um, and we're, you know, that's a, that's the, the subject of future conversations, I'm sure. But okay. So we've, we've talked about odorants. We've talked about aroma. Um, and we've talked about, uh, the, uh, the journey that they go on. Let's talk about taste. Let's talk about the, the taste buds. Let's talk about, uh, that journey. Yes. So what, what's fascinating to me, uh, about this whole discussion of taste and smell together uh, is this question of the functions of the two parts of our, uh, these two parts of our flavor system. And the first uh, function, the function of the uh, smell is really a question of picking, I, picking something out and giving it some kind of identity and some kind of valence. Is it good? Is it bad? Or what have you. What the taste system does is something quite different. Uh, which is to say it talks about the nutritional value of something that you're taking in. So, for example, um, it can sense sweet, and sweet means that there are carbohydrates of some kind around or chemicals which can imitate carbohydrates, I should say. Um, and, the uh, you know, you have something that's sour, um, fruits that are sour tend not to be ripe. You might, may want to avoid them. Um, it may be salty, it may be uh, bitter, generally speaking, compounds that may have an uh, effect on your physiology, like caffeine, for example, they, they tend to be bitter and they tend to be, um, you know, they may be poisonous. So bitterness is a warning that something might be, might be poisonous. Um, yeah, sure. Bitterness is sort of related to some sort of um, very high, high power sort of pharmacological action yeah. on, on, on your body. Uh, and that's why my presumption is that's why until you learn which, t which bitterness is, is medicinal versus which bitterness is toxic, and we all know that that's related to many different things, including dosage. Yeah. As a child, we tend to be quite averse to bitter things right? because we, we, ha we have yet to learn those lessons. Right. But the also the other feature of childhood is that uh, if you look, we did videos when I was still on the faculty at Cornell. We did videos of children's tongues, and they have way more taste papillae than adults. Really? Yes. And so they're going to be way more sensitive. Now, some people, like yours, to have 
retained that uh, childhood state of way too many taste buds. But, <laughs> but most... <laughs> Hence your, 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 your hatred of green beans, right? Precisely, precisely. <laughs> Um, uh, but, um, but there's, there's a couple of things about childhood and taste that, that really matter here. Um, uh, the first thing is, yes, children do have way more taste buds and the ability to sense a lot of these compounds, uh, drops off as you get older and, um, how or why is not clear. We did another study, again, with that, that paper question, you know, the, well, it was actually another chemical, but it's the same basic mechanism. Um, uh, and we had people um, taste this, this uh, paper. And the people who could taste the bitter, um, that drops off as you, as you get past 40, for example. And I must confess, I mean, I'm no spring chicken anymore. Uh, my 77th birthday is this week. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. <laughs> I hope you're cel- going to celebrate with a wonderful tea. Uh, oh, I've got some wonderful teas. <laughs> just, in the last, and just in the last week, I got a couple of packages of amazing teas. But, but what I was going to say is that after 40, the sensitivity tends to drop off. And I find myself, you know, tolerating a green tea that's bitter. And I use the word tolerating, not enjoying, but tolerating. Okay. So I think, I think yes, you do have this sort of drop off as you get older. But there is a first drop off in your teen years and then a next drop off. But I think some people through their teen years actually retain that sensitivity. In other words, you get sort of all children are pretty sensitive and then you get a split and you get people who are continue to be sensitive and people who lose some of that sensitivity. Makes sense? Is that a case of, of simple sort of uh, evolution as in uh, – you know, your brain has learned what it needs to learn about what's dangerous, harmful, what's not, you know, what's safe. Um, and therefore, it, it, it no longer needs to be gathering so much information. Is is that sort of the idea? You, you'd think so. I mean, I don't have, you know, we don't know. I don't know any, why this is true, but that sounds like a very plausible explanation. Uh, the other, The other part of that childhood thing, it has to do with being in the womb. And um, in a previous life, I was a pediatrician and had to attend deliveries of babies. Uh, and uh, you knew what mother had had for dinner when from the smell of really? the amniotic fluid. Yeah. Uh, you know, if she had garlic, oh boy. <laughs> the whole the wow. stinks of garlic. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. Wow. And, uh, I had no idea that it was that direct, that the oh, transfer was so direct. Well, these chemicals are absorbed into the bloodstream. It goes into the amniotic fluid. The baby um, can actually, this smell and taste uh, apparatus is there by 16 weeks gestation. And the baby actually experiences the mother's foodways in the womb. And um, the people at Manel Chemical Center, Julie Manella in particular, has done studies on this, giving having one group of mothers, pregnant women, uh, who are going to be mothers, giving them tomato juice and another group giving them carrot juice. 
And um, then they uh, gave either tomato juice or carrot juice to the newborn. And the mother whose baby, you know, the mother who had taken the carrot juice, um, those babies rejected the tomato and liked the carrot and vice versa. Wow. So the baby wow. already acclimated to the food ways of the, of the group so so this this learning process this subconscious learning process of 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 things that are uh, safe good uh, nutritionally beneficial that learning is is pre-birth yes yes and and before Manella Julie Manella did this research and published it actually when I was pregnant with my two girls I ate all kinds of food that I really hated just because I didn't want them to be as limited as I was because I had had this experience in the delivery room, but I ate lots and lots of fresh tomatoes and my two girls love green beans and fresh tomatoes. (laughs) See that, that is the true sacrifice of a mother right there, you know? Okay. So we're talking about taste. We're talking about the, uh, the relationship of um, taste to nutrition they're two completely different systems and people will say, Oh, um, you know, taste is, is taste really smell? No, it's not smell. Taste is taste. It does this for you. Smell is smell. It does this for you. Smell tells you the what tell tells you, uh, is this something going to be dangerous or not? Uh, taste tells you what the nutritional qualities are. And the brain, of course, puts the two together and says, okay, this is okay to eat. This is not okay to eat. The brain also gets information, for example, from the body. If you've had, um, you know, had enough to eat, as it were, things don't taste quite so good. Uh, If you have Every single day you've eaten the same thing and only that thing for every single day, you'll get, you really don't want to eat it anymore. So you're, so the, the taste, uh, the, the, the taste is not a simple input output thing. It's being modulated by the experience as well. So it's encouraging a diversity of, uh, of nutrition and encouraging uh, the right level of nutrition. So not overeating. And is that what you're saying? That's what I'm trying to say. Yes, exactly. Well put. Um, and, uh, and so then that brings us to uh, the trigeminal system, I think. Okay, one second before we, uh, again, I'm going to pause you there. Uh, first of all, one thing I want to ask, and I, and, and I have never gotten a clear answer to this. Oftentimes, when I smell something, especially tea, I say, this smells sweet. <laughs> Talk to me about Talk to me about whether or not that's possible. Is it possible that you can smell sweetness? It's the brain that interprets a certain smell as being associated with sweet. Right. So the brain is taking a a, a memory, a subconscious memory of an odor, applying that to a taste that that odor is commonly paired with, which is probably carbohydrate or imitating carbohydrate and therefore has a sweet taste. And therefore, it's saying, I associate that smell with sweet things. I think also part of it is a, our limited vocabulary in describing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, uh, certainly in the, in the Western world, one of the things that I did when I, and I never pushed this far enough, and Don, you can speak to this better than I can. Um, as I said before, I have, 
I had a quite a large number of um, people in my in my well, actually in my research group who came from Asia. And one of the things I had them do was to go and talk to their grandmothers about taste and flavor and the experiences of taste and what words they would choose to describe these experiences. And somewhere in this house, I have uh, what they trans what they wrote down. And obviously, um, a lot of these words just do not exist in the language we are speaking together in now. Sure. And so, one of the things I I really think um, is important is, and there are there's a couple of papers about this out there that have been published using uh, sort of European languages versus, uh, well, it was a Dutch study, so Dutch, of course, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and languages from other groups. And the whole choice of what you are going to describe differs from place to place. And the words don't have necessarily a one-to-one translation. One of the things we do in, in the Western world is it smells like a banana, right? We associate smells and tastes with something, an object, right? Some kind of thing that we eat. Uh, and rather than say what the other, I, I'm trying to remember what other languages they looked at, but in any case, non, non-European, non-Indo-European languages. Um, uh, they had words that were specific to that experience, not specific to the actual, uh, what, not the object that has that quality. Whereas we, in Western languages, assign uh, taste and smells to the object that smells like an orange, that um, that has a honey flavor, etc. The, the 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 limitations of language and the way that we communicate these things that are these senses this 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 world of be it sound be it taste be it smell it it, it is an often frustrating thing when you f- when you're trying to describe something uh, especially when it comes to things like tea where there is there are so many subtleties in the tasting or the aroma of tea that it's a very difficult thing to get across to people unless you're sitting drinking with them. When it comes to the actual tasting of tea or anything, uh, you're basically saying that whilst there are obviously thousands, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of aroma uh, volatiles, when it comes down to taste, we're looking at the nutrition and, and the taste buds are essentially dividing the taste into the bitter, sweet, salty, sour, um, and umami. Yeah, correct. But we also, and this doesn't apply to tea really very much unless you drink Tibetan style tea. Uh, we also have, as it turns out, uh, the ability to sense fats. and. Right. And, and minerals, um, calcium in particular. So actually, I mean, the vocabulary, I can, if I can put it that way, of, of what the taste uh, receptors can, can perceive or the various taste receptors can perceive 
is is enlarging over time as people are you know looking into this question. Um, so we have we have, but still it's it's more it is the nutritional quality. It is the chem. The chemistry, not from the point of view of aroma chemistry, but the point of view of nutritional chemistry. That's right. So obviously, sweet giving the is a signal to the body that it's going to have some sort of carbohydrate factor. Bitter being that it's going to have some pharmacological effect. So to sort of be wary and and be cautious around it. Uh, umami. What 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 is that? sort of telling the body is, is simply that there's... Yeah, oh, that's a very good question because umami, uh, well, let me first start by saying that um, the signal for the uh, what we interpret as umami is glutamate, um, right. glutamine, glutamate. And that in, in muscle, for example, um, which is what we eat, you know, when we eat animal meat, we're eating muscle... 60% of this amino acid glutamate is existing free. It's not part of a protein. It is sitting in the fluid of the muscle. Uh, so the, the, from, the, from the animal who has the muscle's point of view, it's there as a, as a carbon backbone to, to be used for muscle energetics. But from the point of view of our perception, it tells us, a couple of things. The first thing it tells us is that uh, this is this has got protein in it, and uh, so that protein is really very. Uh, you, know, you know, we need protein, so this is this is the way we know that something we're eating has 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 meat protein in it, as it were. And of course, you can fool the system by other glutamates and other, uh, you know. Mushrooms can have glutamate-free also. Um, and then we, of course, have uh, theanine in tea. And theanine is a, a glutamide, as it were. Um, in other words, it has, a it has a glutamine aspect to it. And, um, and so that what happens there is that you actually uh, uh, kind of fool your system by uh, telling it, yeah, there's there's something something meaty about this. Let's take the uh, gyokuro, uh, the Japanese uh, shade-grown green tea. Um, it will have less catechins, which are bitter because catechins are basically a sun sunshade, uh, sunglasses yeah. for the leaf, um, and so it doesn't need that. So it doesn't make catechins, but um, it does produce in a large amount relative. Relative to the amount of catechins, it produces a lot of um, of, um, of theanine, and um, uh, what you end up with is a brothy. If you make a really uh, you know a, a really good gyokuro is not bitter, but it is brothy, which also has a has a profound effect on your physiology, crossing the blood brain barrier and having huge effects on it. So it's interesting. Uh, how different cultures respond to that umami taste. Oftentimes, you know, uh, you notice a sort of cultural appreciation or uh, a reaction against teas that are overly savory or overly umami. Uh, some people absolutely adore it, um, and some people are, are less keen. Um, what I'm fascinated by is how 
all of these different taste buds sort of uh, modulate each other or how all these different tastes modulate each other. And I remember when we were, when I was at the tea expo, you, uh, you did that simple trick of, of putting uh, salt. I can't remember. Was it, was it an overbrewed green tea? Perhaps I, th- I, I think it was. Salt with a green tea. You just need a teeny tiny pinch of it and it will turn off the bitter sensations. It's, and I, I have been given to understand, because I have unfortunately in my life never been to China, um, I have been given, however, to understand that you might put a tiny pinch of uh, salt in your tea water in order to make uh, the tea less bitter. Well, I think that that was a practice that was commonly done when uh, tea was essentially brewed up similar to matcha. Uh, so it was ground up and therefore was extracting very strong quantities of catechins um, and therefore was extremely bitter um, and therefore <laughs> required salt in order, to, uh, in order to attenuate that bitterness. Nowadays, uh, due to the sort of advent of gong fu brewing and, and whole leaf, it seems to be something that's less practiced, but it certainly was something that was done uh, in the past, um, especially with more of those sort of finely ground green teas. So salt attenuates bitterness. Bitterness and sweetness uh, have a sort of counteractive quality about them as well, a relationship. Is that correct? So bitterness right. and sweetness is sort of, it's dependent on threshold. Right. And what happens there with it, you know, one of the things that people will do is put sugar in, in, a, in a tea that is overbrewed. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of the, uh, oh my goodness, um, uh, the Turkish tea that I've had. Now, Turkish tea, Turkish tea, when I have done it myself, or it's very freshly made, so it hasn't been overbrewed in the Chaidanlik, um, then that Turkish tea is absolutely delicious. But it, uh, more often than not, it is absolutely overbrewed. I mean, it sits in the little pot on the top of the heat, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Just yeah. Like, oh gosh, or tea from a samovar, you know, the Russian style, which is basically the the Turkish style and the Russian style, same deal. Um, that tea is so overbrewed and so you know bitter, bitter, bitter. Um, but what do they serve you to, it with? They serve it with, well, in, in Russia, they have raspberry jam, for example. Or in Turkey, you get some of that um, Turkish delight, uh, you know, or a little cube, a couple of cubes of sugar. And, you, ha- you know, in order to tolerate the bitterness and actually begin to taste the other aspects of the tea, uh, you really need that sugar. Now, you, you'll notice I said to... Um, understand the other aspects of the tea if something like bitter is too strong you will actually not smell the tea anymore yeah and in china they also often use eggshell uh have you have you come across this that makes very good sense because again um what we don't we don't know the details of the um calcium taste sense yet in any kind of detail but calcium will do a couple of things, um, and that's where the eggshell can come in. Uh, it will it will bind up. The calcium will actually bind up with the with the catechins, and especially with the larger um, polyphenols. In other words, uh, catechins. Yeah, this is mostly done with black teas. Yeah. Yeah, 
And, and that will actually precipitate out, and that's why you get that tea scum. That will yeah. precipitate out those compounds. And those compounds are uh, astringent. Now, you will read in the literature very often that astringency is because it dries the mouth. Well, it does not dry the mouth. Astringent. I am 100% with you on this, Virginia. <laughs> I've gone through this. I've, I'm continuously arguing with people about this concept of friction in the mouth. And <laughs> There's nothing to do with it. And, and in fact, astringent compounds have the capacity of binding the bitter receptor simultaneously or activating it simultaneously with one of the trigeminal receptors called TRPV1. And um, those large polyphenols will be capable of activating both simultaneously. And the sensation that we get from the trigeminal nerve is what we call um, astringency. And what the, tri the trigeminal nerve is really telling us is you better drink something that isn't like this. You better drink some water. Okay, so <laughs> let's let, let's just finish up on taste buds. Then we'll move into we'll move into uh, uh, the trigeminal because that is a whole world into itself. So, uh, just so people understand, salt cancels bitter. Sweet and bitter uh, have a sort of counteractive uh, relationship depending upon um, the uh, thresholds. Right. Sour has the ability to to knock out everything if right. it's uh, if it's if it's too strong. Essentially, uh, all of those taste buds. There, there are many different taste buds on the tongue, right? So they are combining with the uh, olfaction, with all of the the aromas, um, and moving to the brain. And for many people involved in the theory of taste, the next part, which is the trigeminal system, is something which I certainly had not heard about until attending your lecture. Uh, let's talk about what we think of as the the sort of conventional wisdom of what the purposes of the trigeminal system is, and then maybe you can apply it to concepts of taste and experience. Yes. So uh, the trigeminal system is a system of three basic nerves that all connect back to the brainstem. And the trigem tri is, uh, trigeminal means a triplet, essentially. And one branch of the trigeminal system goes to your eye and your forehead and that, that area. So if you get something in your eye and it's touching the cornea, that, that trigeminal part of the trigeminal nerve called, strangely enough, the ophthalmic part, uh, will actually send a message to your brain and then you, you know, you, irritation and, and you deal with whatever the, the moat in your eye happens to be. Uh, and then the next two branches, one of them goes to the nose. And um, if you breathe in pepper, for example, uh, it's the trigeminal nerve endings that, that get irritated and uh, because they pick up their receptors, pick up the, the chemicals in the pepper. Uh, plus you get uh, sort of the physical sensation of the pepper through the trigeminal nerve. That, in other words, the peace that's sitting there, and you want to sneeze it out, and that's another reflex arc. Uh, and then you that particular branch also reaches the uh, palate. Now, one thing that people don't realize is that there are taste buds in the palate as well, uh, not just the tongue. And there are taste buds that go down the back of the throat as well, and not just on the tongue. Uh, so anyway, that those, those are also... Uh, 
Those taste buds also have trigeminal nerve endings in them, plus you have other sort of free endings in the palate, as all around the palate as well. And then uh, the third branch, um, uh, the mandibular branch, goes to the tongue, the teeth, uh, all the surrounding tissues, as it were, in, in the lower part of the, the mouth. And uh, as I said, each taste bud has also a trigeminal nerve ending. So they're all talking with each other. Your taste and your smell nerve endings are talking with your trigeminal nerve endings all the time. And what I have found absolutely fascinating is that um, the trigeminal nerves actually serves as a, a volume dial. Uh, classically, you think of it as a, a texture, as temperature, as pain, actually, that is associated with the temperature, a little bit of sort of the wetness, mouthfeel type aspect of anything you're taking in. But it also serves as a volume dial to turn up and down your sensations of taste and smell. So what we're talking about is uh, the conventional sort of uh, purpose of uh, the trigeminal system is essentially picking up physical, a physical, this physical sensations, right. the sort of wetness, the temperature, the uh, irritations, pain. A perfect example would be if you eat uh, hot chili peppers, Perfect. right? Um, that that pain sensation is your trigeminal system activating. Exactly. Similarly, if you have a, if you have mint. Um, it's going to be activating on the cold side, um, and that can also lead to a certain types of pain because your body is is programmed to be wary of um, things that are too cold. You know, putting ice on your tongue is going to be a painful experience. Exactly. So uh, that's the, the the sort of broad stroke of of how it's being thought of. But what's so fascinating is, and I had no idea, is that the taste buds themselves ha- have a connection with the trigeminal system. And that, for me, is a huge game changer in understanding why taste is so uh, variable depending upon things like temperature. Right. So uh, can, can we sort of dive into that? Just sort of give us uh, some broad strokes regarding that temperature scale and what that means in terms of ta- how we experience the taste of different foods and drinks. Yeah, and you gave a perfect example of what I'm talking about just now when you talked about chili peppers. Because we call the sensation that capsaicin in chili peppers gives us, we call it hot. And hot is, um, I mean, the chili pepper itself is not, does not, well, it's at room temperature, for example. It does not, it's not physically hot. And yet we translate that sensation that um, capsaicin gives us as hot. And there's a very good reason for that. Uh, capsaicin, the chemical, binds to the same receptor that is activated by hot temperatures. So the brain doesn't know that, that it's capsaicin. It just knows that that particular receptor on the trigeminal nerve that reacts to hot is now reacting to the capsaicin and the brain interprets that as hot. So we talk about, uh, you know, hot peppers, even though they physically may not be hot at all. At the other end of that particular spectrum, um, you mentioned a mint. 
And mint, menthol actually, specifically, um, activates a, um, a receptor on the trigeminal nerve that is responsive to cold. So we taste a mint. The mint can be, you know, you can make a mint tea that's quite hot, and yet it will not taste so hot because, in fact, uh, you're activating the cold receptor. The brain interprets that as cold. And so you think of mints as, as cold. And one of the fasc- other fascinating things is, and we did that experiment, I think, Don, is you can take a cinnamon candy and uh, get the cinnamon flavor coming, and it is hot and maybe even slightly painful uh, because cinnamon, chemicals in cinnamon activate the hot receptor. And then you take a, a mint, but uh, the mo- you, you take the cinnamon candy in, you get the cinnamon flavor going, you put the cinnamon candy aside, you take it out and you put it aside, and then you take the mint and put it in your mouth and almost instantaneously the mint uh, takes over and the you lose that hot sensation. And the reason is that the, um, the receptor for hot, which the cinnamon is, is activating, um, has a, a long on, uh, takes a long time to get activated and a long time to come off activation. Remember that? That's going to be important next. But the uh, response from the menthol is instantaneous because those receptors sent the message immediately. Uh, you know, it doesn't take them a long time to get activated. Um, and so then you take the mint out of your mouth. You, you had the, um, the cooling sensation. You don't have the cinnamon anymore. You take the mint out of your mouth and just set it aside again. And you wait. And because the cinnamon is not only takes a long time to go on the receptor or get the receptor activated, it also sits there for a long time and the activation still continues. And in a matter of half a minute, maybe, the cinnamon flavor comes back. Yeah, it it was remarkable. I remember it very, very clearly. And that is a demonstration of the, uh, shall we say, the mutual inhibition of these receptors and also the timing that they have for uh, responding. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and the same is, is, uh, has been experienced by everybody who's had very hot food. You know, you, you, you have very spicy food and you try to quell it with, with cold water, you're going to have an instantaneous relief effect. But the moment that you've swallowed that water, uh, that uh, cool receptor, t- receptor turns off and the inhibition that it has uh, been acting upon the hot receptor dies away very quickly and you get that long burning return of uh, chilly heat. Precisely. So what you have to do is actually completely turn off that hot receptor. And just fooling it with something cold doesn't work. Uh, but there is a direct way to turn that off, and that is to say uh, using something with fat. And right. And so this brings us back to the idea of the astringency factor is stimulating the hot trigeminal uh, temperature receptors. And therefore, the only way to 
to stop it is not by uh, trying to inhibit it through contrast, but through competition, uh, by, uh, by competing for those receptors with fat. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And once fat is bound onto the TRPV1, it, it stops sending any messages. So um, why do you put milk in a very strong, very astringent black tea? Well, milk has fat in it or, cl- or clotted cream. You want to have one of the classics <laughs> where you are is to have clotted cream with your very overbrewed black tea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that will... Uh, totally eliminate um, that that astringency. Well, not totally, probably. It depends on the relative concentration. But nevertheless, it can eliminate that astringency. So now, once you've taken away that hotness, you can start actually tasting a teeness. Um, Just as we mentioned, bitter sort of overpowers the other possibilities for sensing flavors. We have the same kind of thing with the um, um, uh, trigeminal receptors uh, that if, if they are activated, especially TRPV1, which is the hot receptor, if that's activated, it kind of takes over all the other possible sensations, you know? Um, it, 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 in a way, that's what the brain is going to be paying attention to. But if, sure. If you can get rid of that um, hot sensation, um, and I'm putting hot in quotes, you can't see me doing my finger quotes, but here we go. If you get rid of the, um, uh, uh, that, that hot or, in fact, that cold sensation, what you can then do is appreciate the other flavors because you're, you're not, your brain is not preoccupied, as it were, with, with dealing with this overwhelming unpleasant sensation right so there's there's so many things to get your head around here so the first is the idea of um the receptors uh so you talked about trpv1 but let we'll just call them sort of hot to cold right so cold sort of cool warm and hot right so if you imagine this spectrum you have trigeminal receptors that are sort of assigned to those different temperatures so the first thing that we're talking about is that they can inhibit each other or they can complement each other. Right. Is that, is that correct? Correct. So therefore, if you have something which is stimulating the hot and you take something cold, it's going to temporarily short in a short term way, disable or inhibit your sensation of the hot, vice versa. This then leads on to the actual actual physical temperature of the tea that you're drinking or the food that you're eating. Right. And one thing that always struck in my mind was you telling me that um, uh, sweet, am I, am I right in thinking that sweet things are generally more in the sort of warm territory? Right. Right. And, and this is why melted ice cream tastes so overbearingly sweet. Exactly. Because when you cool down ice cream to the point where it's the, the texture that is desirable, you have so impacted the ability of your taste and trigeminal system to react to sweet that uh, you have to add so much more sugar than you would normally add if it was at room temperature. And this is where the temperature of the tea when you're drinking it has a big effect on what sort of temp- what sort of 
qualities you are going to get out of the tea. We always hear about, for example, green tea um, you know, being more suited to, say, cold brewing. Uh, well, that sort of makes sense when you start to apply this theory to it because cold brew teas or teas that are drunk at a cooler temperature are going to be accentuating, let's say, more of those cool flavors. Is that correct? Correct. The chemicals in green tea will activate the cooler receptor end. Um, and, uh, and, and by the way, what do we call green tea? We call it refreshing, right? And part of the trigeminal nerve actually also speaks to, or that when those receptors are activated, it speaks to the brainstem, the part of the brainstem that says, wake up and pay attention. Um, and uh, it's fascinating to me to realize that, uh, you know, when you have something cool, we call it refreshing, but that is fresh means becoming renewed um, and so forth. And that part of the brain that that, that, that green tea is uh, coming to is involved, or brainstem, is involved with waking up the entire brain. And if you get the chemicals in a wulong, uh, sit in that intermediate point, a lot of them. Um, there's a chemical which is the same as in strawberry called foraniol. And by the way, strawberries and wulongs go along nicely together. Oh, blissful combination, yeah. <laughs> and that chemical hits the warm receptors. And, um, you, I mean, you can have an iced wulong. Yeah, that's fine. But you lose a lot of the aroma qualities of it. Uh, it doesn't seem so floral. It seems more citrus because now what it's done is actually allow the system to sense the cooler chemicals, the chemicals that get the, the cooler end, and turn off the ability get to hit the chemicals in the sort of the, the middle warm end. And this is what's so fascinating about this uh, concept is that you can have the same tea brewed in exactly the same way that have uh, technically got the same chemical compounds in them, right. but your experience of them is so fundamentally affected by temperature. Exactly. Um, and by, uh, as we've talked uh, previously about pairing, because, you know, you, you adding certain things before or after that's going to be affecting the, uh, the, the, not just your taste buds, but your trigeminal system is going to vastly change the way that you in, uh, experience something. And so one of the most fascinating things for me is tasting teas at different temperatures, oh. as well as tasting teas with different uh, standardized things like strawberries and things like that, where you go, well, I know that this works with certain certain uh, foods and drinks and when you start to bring in the pairing side of it it all starts to make sense there's a reason why chocolate and chili work together for example yes because they both stimulate similar parts of your trigeminal system yeah and that so you you dial up your perception of those flavors and um and, and uh, raspberries and black tea try strawberries and black tea Buh. uh Try raspberries and black tea, and suddenly, because raspberry ketone is in there, 
um, suddenly you you have your. I mean, one of the most heavenly things to do is to have a a really delicious, very oxidized black tea, coupled with a chocolate regal, which is basically a cake made of out of pure chocolate, with a raspberry coulis on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my lord you're in heaven because you can taste the tea as tea you can taste the chocolate as chocolate and you can taste the raspberries as raspberries because the trigeminal system is acting as a volume knob right so uh, I, I i like to um always um relate my sort of previous life as a sound engineer to to, to tea brewing and tea tasting i often talk in my videos about oh this has a bright or fresh or uh, light aromatics versus deep, warm, bassy aromatics. And, and I think I'm sort of doing the same thing as, as you're talking in terms of temperature, as I'm talking in terms of sort of high EQs versus lower EQs. But it, it, it's, it's all about that idea of there being generally a spectrum upon which flavors tend to sit um, and if you start to combine flavors that sit within the same area, there is a tendency that they will uh, accentuate each other and you'll get an experience which is lar larger than the sum of its parts. Exactly. Precisely. And um, uh, that, I mean, that is extremely well expressed there, Don, because that's exactly what's happening. And um, yeah. So, for example, um, have a have a have a green tea with something minty um not too minty because you, you know but my gosh what a wonderful combination or um something with with lemon but take that same lemon say a lemon lemon curd okay take that same lemon curd uh, you know on your shortbread and then have it with a black tea and you can forget the black tea you won't even taste yeah. it it's gone. Yeah. So this is where the exploration of sort of taste uh, and pairing interests me. And I, and I remember having a little back and forth with you uh, probably very soon after that lesson, because my mind was sort of scrambling with ideas. But <laughs> you, you, you have this idea of stimulating similar parts of the spectrum, chocolate and chili, raspberry and black uh, tea, for example, or uh, mint and green tea or uh, the zest of a lemon and green tea versus right. the, the, the actual juice of a lemon and green tea. Those are two different things, right? So very different. You've got, you've got all of th this kind of activity that relates to the harmonious aspect of stimulating similar nerve endings, essentially. Right. <clears throat> but then you have the idea of the sort of temporal aspect of enjoying something. Yes. Right. Yeah. Which is like stimulating different receptors sort of in sequence. Can can we talk about that briefly as a sort of end point? Because I think, you know, we are getting to two hours nearly on this. Yeah. So, uh, but a sort of end point, like how do we, how does this relate to things like complexity um, and things like a sort of sequential or temporal concept of tasting? Yes, and that is that is something so fascinating because we tend to think, okay, I'm tasting this, this, it, you know. Rather, we experience flavors over time. You remember my talking about that experiment with the with the cinnamon and the mint candies. Um, it takes a little while for that cinnamon 
to kick in. So you have a you have a temporal aspect right there, and anything that's going to hit the hot end, uh, you know, the classic is. You have a chili and somebody tells you, oh, that's going to be too hot. And you taste it and you say, oh, it isn't. <gasps> and then you suddenly realize your mouth is on fire, right? I mean, yeah. it's a beat for that to, to be perceived. Uh, whereas something that's cool is instantaneous. And the things that are in between have a sort of in-between temporal association. So what you can do in a meal is you can kind of switch back and forth as you're eating your foods. One of the things that fascinated me, uh, when you look at very formal French menus, you have at a certain point a sorbet what, before the entree, and the entree is going to be hitting the warm receptors, generally speaking, uh, we're ta- we're talking about you know something with a rather fatty gravy on it. So, but it's also going to have uh, meat and and a little bit of uh, sweet sour type aspect. So you're going to hit the the sort of the warm comfort food type temperatures. And uh, prior to that, you might have had something you know a little more spicy or something. But what the sorbet does is re- reset the system especially if you take time to eat that sorbet. And then now you're, now you are set up to really appreciate the, the warm things. Uh, So yeah, even in a single bite of something, you can sense the evolution of these flavors. And this is what's so fascinating. Uh, Obviously when you talk about designing a menu or you're talking about pairing, there are so many factors to consider regarding this from a, sensorial point of view but also a technical point of view now that you can sort of it, it it's sort of like uh, what i love about uh talking with you virginia is sort of it, it uncovers the sort of the technical uh aspects of how all of these uh, experiences sort of make sense and so you can design menus around this concept of complexity this concept of resetting the palate and devising an experience um, but as you say The challenge or what's fascinating, and I'm sure you've had many of these meals as well, is when you have a single bite or you have a plate where you're encouraged to take a little bit of everything in one one mouthful and you get this symphony of uh, tastes which seem to come in stages. And one of the characteristic, um, I would say, quality markers that I am always looking for in tea is that Yes. That sequential shifting in the mouth of flavors from it might start off with a sort of bracing, uh, fresh, slightly bitter note that then transforms into a gorgeous sweetness. And, you know, the interplay that's happening, the, the complex interplay which is happening on the taste buds and through with the trigeminal system is something that is so fascinating and and is only being something that we're talking about technically now, but throughout the ages, through centuries, tea has been produced to try to create this sort of symphonic sort of taste. Yeah. And there's one other aspect that I really want to mention, and that is the question of aftertaste. Yeah. Because one of the characteristics of, uh, the, again, I, I'm coming back to Wulongs, but because <laughs> to me they are the most fascinating, most fascinating teas ever. 
Um, but one of their characteristics is they always have an aftertaste. And as a matter of fact, one of the fascinating things to me uh, when I've done studies and asking people what do they like about a tea, one of the things that comes up all the time is I like the aftertaste. And um, Wulongs can have either kind of a prickly aftertaste. Um, I think one Chinese emperor described it as fish bones. <laughs> uh, or it can have like a really good Tiaguanyin um, from, from certain cultivars. They don't all do this. Um, uh, of a, a prolonged sort of soft, sweet aftertaste. And um, it turns out that this has to do in part, and when I say sweet, has to do in part with the dynamics of the sweet receptor. Um, the sweet receptor is always a little bit on, and um, as it, because it's always a little bit on, uh, you have to have a lot of sweet to, to sort of bounce it into con uh, conscious awareness. But you can also have a situation where something is bitter and the bitterness turns it completely off. And once it's turned completely off, when the bitterness is gone, whatever's causing it, is gone from your mouth, those sweet uh, cells, the cells that respond to sweet, uh, actually turn on again to that half state, but your brain, having had them now turned off, will sense that as coming back on. So you en end up having a sweet aftertaste. Right. So this is, uh, I, 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 I'm not sure if you've seen uh, the video, but I did a whole video about what is hui gan. So hui gan is, uh, is this concept of returning sweetness. Yes. Um, and uh, and so it's it's it's, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, so from what I understand, what you're saying is it's similar to let's say a sort of a, a low threshold white noise is happening. You get accustomed to it, so you don't hear it anymore. Um, but then suddenly, when when the white noise is turned off and then turned back on again, you suddenly notice it. Um, and so there is this residual sweetness which is brought into consciousness through contrast. Right. Um, what's also fascinating is that in order to do that, it requires some bitterness. Exactly. Um, and this is one of the reasons why bitterness to some degree, and as you uh, have very eloquently said, it depends on the subjectivity of whoever's tasting it. But to some degree, bitterness is a desired quality in certain, in most teas within certain uh, parameters, especially if you are looking for transformation, because right. transformation, uh, the aftertaste is in, at least in Chinese um, sort of a grading of teas is the number one uh, factor for grading quality. Aroma and taste is much lower down on the list right. compared to aftertaste. Right. So the idea of transformation, the idea of this journey that leads you back to hui gan. Hui gan means returning sweetness, so returning back to source sweetness. This idea of an aftertaste is so fundamental to the judgment of quality. We were also briefly, as an aside, going into glycosides um, and trying to understand their relationship to the concept of sweetness um, and specifically glycosidase in your saliva and how much of that actually breaks down 
glycosides to carve off sugars um, to to right. to uh, to bring about sweetness. I'm sure that's something that you have had have some things to talk about as well. No <laughs> doubt. Yeah. Is that is that theory possible? Yes, of course it is, and that becomes a you know an extremely interesting question because when this in fact break down. Well, let let me explain that what what we are talking about. A glycoside is a combination of a aroma chemical, which is volatile, which in other words means that it will, uh, if if given the opportunity, it will fly into the air. Uh, and um, in order for that not to happen, and in order for it to say stay soluble in the water of inside a, a leaf cell, um, what nature has done is taken those volatiles and added a sugar, uh, well, they call it a moiety, a molecule of sugar to it and, you know, link them together, the sugar and the volatile compound, the aroma compound, link them together. Uh, and so now they're both water soluble <clears throat> and they don't uh, fly into the air. The, in a way, this is the cell's way of holding chemicals in waiting until they're needed. And these aroma chemicals that we love so much in tea are actually not in the tea leaf because <laughs> the tea leaf knows it's going to become part of our delicious cup, but because um, those chemicals are useful to the, the leaf for doing two, two kinds of things. One is to, of course, uh, tell um, you know, get rid of insects. In other words, these aroma chemicals or uh, insects may find them not desirable. Uh, but the other purpose is to warn other leaves in the vicinity to start making their own aroma chemicals to then uh, start up the metabolism needed for them to defend themselves against whatever happens to be attacking them. Sure. So it's a it's a chemical signaling system. Yeah, it's exactly a chemical sig signaling system, and but it's a chemical si signaling system that is held in abeyance in a very interesting way, in the sense that what you need to do to uh, release these volatile chemicals is you have to have the action of enzymes called glycosidases. And glycosidases are, um, exist in the cytoplasm, that is to say the fluid inside a cell, but they also exist in the cell wall. And the reason uh, for their existence from a biological point of view, from the leaf's point of view, the reason for them to stay in existence in the cell wall is um, because when you breach the cell wall, these enzymes can then be released and then act on the glycosides with with the uh, volatile chemicals attached and make and release the volatile chemicals sure so you have a situation where the uh, the signal, signaling system is ready to go but requires leaf damage as soon as leaf damage happens enzyme and glycos uh, glycosidase enzyme and glycosides uh, inevitably mix and you get this beautiful release of aromatics which which either repel or attract or signal in some way as a sort of a plant defense mechanism. Precisely. 
Precisely. I, I, I sense that we're moving into podcast number two here because this is... Oh, okay. We, we, uh, <laughs> I'm very conscious of the fact that people are... are we've, we said that we're not going to talk about the what's of taste and we. it was my fault because I started to talk about glycosidase um, because really this is a, a much wider discussion of, of the actual compounds that are created and the reasons the plant creates them. And I think that that is a fascinating discussion that I would love to dive into on another occasion. But I, for now, I think that we've covered a lot in this uh, podcast. <laughs> oh, yes. And as always, it is an absolute honor to speak to you, uh, Virginia. It's an honor to consider you one of my teeth friends. And I'm always, always open arms whenever you want to come back on the show and have another discussion with me. Well, it's a great honor for me, Don. And, uh, you know, I, I so appreciate what you are offering to the world of tea, not just through your, your, the teas that you actually provide, but m even more importantly, all the videos about tea that you have created. And in fact, those vi I have looked at those videos to inform me about what tea is all about. And those have been, I would say, seminal to the creation of my book. So uh, this is a, a definitely a two-way interchange. It has been a, a wonderful opportunity for me. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, I mean, the whole point of, uh, of I think, the, the, the community is trying to understand and share as much knowledge as possible and, and making that as freely available to everybody to disseminate, to discuss, to argue about, uh, which we all know happens, but that's <laughs> fine. It's all, it's all part of the discussion. And that's, uh, and that's, as long as the discussion is thriving, then the tea community is thriving in our opinion. And of course, you know, anybody who's listening, thank you so much for listening. And, and, and if you want to check out uh, those YouTube videos, if you're not uh, familiar with Mayleaf YouTube channel, then go check it out and subscribe to our newsletter about the podcast so you can find out when Virginia is going to come back. And um, of course, if you're interested, and who would not be, in everything that Virginia has been talking about regarding the flavor perception, the how, whys, and what's of flavor perception of tea, then you need to go and uh, purchase her book, which is called Tea, A Nerd's Eye View, available on Amazon. Is that correct, Virginia? That's correct. Thank you so much. No, you need to check it out. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful read. And I hope that we'll get a chance to do our, our follow-up conversation shortly. But until then, thank you so much, Virginia, and have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. And I'm very much looking forward to our next conversation and the ones after that to come. Yeah, absolutely. Long, long may they continue. This has been a thrill. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Virginia. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.